to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, John Bash asks Mark if we as Christians should expect suffering. Let's ponder what Mark answers. We are back with Mark Talbot today talking about the issue of suffering when the stars disappear. This great book, and and this time we're going to ask the question, should Christians expect suffering? And so, Mark, I got to start out by telling you that I confess that I really don't trust overly smiley people, and maybe even worse is Christian overly smiley people. Yet somehow, somewhere, someone got the idea that being a Christian would allow one to live a successful, pain-free, happy life. And they sure didn't get that from the Bible, did they? No, they didn't. And in fact, that's what this book is supposed to show. That's why it focuses on the stories of Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah, and on the Psalms of Lament. When the Stars Disappear, John, is my attempt to administer a kind of spiritual first aid to Christians who felt ambushed by their suffering. What I'm trying to do is to show that suffering is common in Scripture, and so we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. Yet Scripture also makes it clear that we should expect that God will help us in and through our suffering. Mm. You know, I think it really is worthwhile getting a definition of suffering because as we run into people, certainly as we watch TV, we can see the shallowness of people, and I say particularly in America, who feel like they're suffering when, you know, they can't find their makeup. Um, or they don't get just, oh, my steak was cooked wrong at the restaurant. This was horrible. Give me a realistic definition of suffering. In my second volume, which comes out in July, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, I characterize suffering like this. We suffer whenever we experience anything that is unpleasant enough that we want it to end. We suffer whenever we experience something that is unpleasant enough that we want it to end. Now, if we think of suffering that way, it enables us to recognize all of the kinds of experiences that Scripture takes to be suffering, including 
experiences that we may not think of as kinds of suffering at all. Hmm. For example, when God said to Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis, after he and Eve have eaten from the forbidden tree, when God says to Adam, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. What God was doing was declaring that daily work is meant now in this sinful world, that daily work is meant to be painful and troublesome to some degree. Most of us, I think if we work diligently, know this. We are weary at the end of the day and glad that the day has come to an end, that the work day has come to an end. Daily work is supposed to be a kind of mild suffering that every day reminds us that the world is not as God created it to be. Another instance, God in that same portion of Scripture declared that most women would also be acquainted with suffering in their marriages, that marriage would not be the unrelievedly pleasant, delightful thing that most of us may think marriage is going to be before we get married. And furthermore, uh, God makes clear that uh, women, when they have children, are going to suffer to some degree, at least emotionally, from then on as they take on the cares and the concerns of their children. So in fact, in Scripture, John, there are all sorts of suffering that we quite often don't really think of as suffering, but that are meant to be these, these reminders, these taps on the shoulder from God that the world is not the way that he created it to be. And uh, by these taps, we are supposed to turn around and look to him and realize that, in fact, he has promised that for those who shelter themselves under his son's uh, work under his son's blood, that they, in fact, will someday know that there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. You know, I got to admit, you, you're really not a good marketing guy because, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, how do we balance this in light of the fact that God promises many blessings to his children, and uh, being a Christian has rewards um, in this lifetime and daily. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, where does the healthy, happy, and prosperous stuff fit in? And, and there are those who just talk about that, and we call it prosperity theology. Where does that come from? It's been around a long time. It's not just new. You know, how do we understand those people who just say, if you're a Christian, God's going to just, you know, bring down blessings like you can't believe. Where do we get that? That's not what you're saying. <laughs> That's right. I would suggest that part of the problem there, John, is that those people have the wrong idea of the blessings that God gives us that the blessings are not basically blessings of a smooth, trouble-free life. They are the blessings of feeling that we are in communion with him and that other Christians are drawing alongside us, both in our joys and in our pains. Think of the apostles after they're let out of prison in Acts 5, 
returning to the wider body of believers and rejoicing in the fact that they have been allowed to suffer for their Lord's name. I think that God regularly blesses us with all of the things in our lives that don't go wrong. And he usually does that providentially. In other words, he does it in the ordinary, non-miraculous course of things. He is providing for us. He is blessing us all of the time. And it is perhaps especially when we are not aware that he is doing that, that he actually is blessing us with gifts that right now we aren't, we aren't anywhere near conscious enough of. My practice over the years has become this. When something starts to go wrong, maybe physiologically or at work or anywhere else, when something starts to go wrong, I thank God that it hasn't gone wrong in the past. Hmm. You know, I'm still struggling, though. I mean, we are to be optimistic a bit, and we don't want to be those rose-colored glasses kind of people. Uh, I, I want to know more. How am I optimistic? Is it is it all rooted in in who God is rather than what's going to happen to me? Good question. It seems to me it's rooted both in who God is and what the full Christian story is. And part of what is important there is to recognize that we mustn't confuse God's promises to his Old Testament people with the way that those promises get reconfigured in the new. So, for instance, even Jesus' disciples took it that if he was the Messiah, that he was going to vanquish his foes with militant might while he was on earth before he died. And that was why, in fact, the cross was such a jarring thing to them because they thought, well, God isn't doing, he can't be the Messiah because God is not doing with Jesus what we think God will do with the Messiah. But in fact, the full Christian story tells us that God will do all of that at the end of time when our Lord comes back. And in the meantime, we are to identify with him and with his suffering in order to be witnesses to what God is doing in the world now. You mentioned, John, that perhaps our optimism should come out of thinking about who God is. I think that's right. I think that if we remember that God is goodness himself— and that he is the giver of every good gift, then in fact, we are going to recognize that any good that comes to us comes from God, and that he will in fact bring to us what is best for us over the long run. And then if we add to that the fact that he's the creator and sustainer of all else, and therefore he has power over everything else, if we add that to God's goodness, then we begin to realize, as Paul said in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because, in fact, everything that could separate us is something that he has either created or he is allowed to be in the world, and he can, in fact, triumph over all of those things and will at the end of time. 
You know, I think you're talking about something that I've been missing. And when you refer to the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and I listen to your language, you're talking about a lot of we's here. And I'm asking a lot of eyes here. I tend to think of suffering in terms of my own suffering. And you tend to be talking about God's promises to a people. And I wonder if that really isn't something I need to adjust to of start saying, you know, God's promises and what's going on is not just about individuals. I'm being super American individualist here. I need to start thinking about my suffering in a larger picture. There's a we here in there. That is exactly right, John. God, in fact, uh, always uh, works out his grace and mercy with regard to a people and not just with regard to individuals. Uh, I mention in one of the pieces that I wrote a few years ago called Broken Wholeness that it seems to me that the best thing that anyone who is suffering pretty deeply can do is as soon as possible to um, think of their suffering as a way of their being able to minister to other suffering people. And the reason is that what gives meaning to our suffering is our being able to say, okay, I have had to face this, but now I have something that I can share and gift to others. Perhaps the main case of that in the New Testament is with the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, where he talks about the fact that he and Timothy had suffered so deeply that they despaired of life itself. They gave up on the idea that their lives would go on. But then the interesting thing is that Paul says that all of that happened so that God, through the Holy Spirit, could encourage them in their suffering so that then they could encourage the Corinthians in whatever kind of suffering they were facing. So you're right, John. We regularly have to think not merely in terms of ourselves, but in terms of the people of God, and not merely the people of God. We need to think of the ways in which we, by our suffering, may be useful even to those who are not Christian by helping them to put their suffering in a wider context and to see the ways in which suffering can make them the sort of people who then are capable of being concerned about more than ourselves, who are able to focus on others and to give them a gift through the suffering that we have suffered that helps to lift the burden of their suffering when they are suffering. You know, we're told in the Bible that we're to weep with those who weep. And I often make the point that I think uh, the Christian church is pretty good at that. But there's another part of it, that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. And it seems to me that we just aren't that good sometimes at celebrating where with those who have good things happen to them. Somebody uh, makes a good business deal, or they end up with a great house or whatever. And our our uh, thinking is so often, well, I wish I could have that, instead of really genuinely having our hearts filled. And, and I feel like I've been given a little measure. I love celebrating with the good that happens with others. That's kind of important here too, isn't it? 
It is. If we think of the Christian life as being a life that, in fact, takes uh, takes away some of the borders and the fences that normally occupy us and allow us to think not merely in terms of ourselves but others, there will be rejoicing as well as weeping. And in fact, the main rejoicing that Christians will be characterized by, will be known for, is rejoicing in our Lord's resurrection as being the first fruits of the fact that when God wraps up history, that he will come and all death and all suffering will be vanquished for his children. And from then on throughout the eschaton, through the period beyond the history of this world, from then on, there will be rejoicing forevermore. Mm. I've been told that false expectations are a really easy way to end up in disillusionment. And I've thought about that a lot. When our expectations don't align with reality, when when we don't really accept the way life is, um, life can become pretty unmanageable. Isn't that part of it, when we align our expectations with what God tells us things are really like? That's right, John. I, I think of one example with regard to this where Christians really, some Christians showed themselves to have false expectations. You remember Sandy Hook, where over 20, I think it was second graders and their teachers um, were killed uh, by a young gunman on television, on some of the major networks after that happened, there were Christian pastors who were so shaken by what had happened that it was obvious that they were questioning their faith, whether or not God was good, whether or not God was almighty. And yet, if they were to have thought in terms of the fact that Herod's slaughter of the infants in the first couple of chapters of Matthew, Herod's slaughter of the infants involved almost exactly the same number of children as those that died at Sandy Hook, they would have realized that, in fact, God has never promised that we will not suffer and that our lives will be such that great tragedies don't happen to us. In fact, that slaughter of the innocents was prophesied by Jeremiah, and it's written down, it's noted by Matthew, not as a reason for doubting God's goodness and power, but in fact, as a reason to think that, in fact, the gospel is true. You know, you hear a lot today that everything is what you make it. Kind of a power of positive thinking sale. But it seems to me, Mark, that you give a better option. Learn how God made it, and you get to live in a reality that does have a really good ending, doesn't it? That is great, John. I really like that. Learn how God has made it. And in fact, that's what my whole second book is dealing with. How did God make things? How did our rebellion uh, lead to the world being damaged in a way that made it no longer what God had made it to be? How is God, through the redemption he offers through his son and through the future consummation, how is God going to make things completely right again for those who trust in his son. 
Thank you, Mark. I look forward to our time together real soon when we ask the question, how can I avoid panic in the face of life's worst realities? Even though Christians can expect that suffering will come, we find our hope in the fact that God is the giver of all good gifts and that He will always bring good out of our suffering. In light of this truth, we look to Christ in the midst of our own pain and as we minister to others in theirs, knowing that one day Jesus will vanquish suffering and death for His children. Mark's conversation partner for this podcast is John Bash, a shepherd with Standing Stone Ministry and host of the radio show and podcast, Church Hurts And. Remember to put in the and when you look for it wherever you listen to podcasts or at churchhurtsand.org. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and John, thanking you for listening to When Stars Disappear.